Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. There is, and appropriately so, a tension between Sarnath as an archaeological monument, a historical monument, but also a highly sacred one. In this episode, I speak with art historian Frederick Asher about his new book, Sarnath, A Critical History of the Place Where Buddhism Began. Sarnath, a village in India, 10 kilometers northeast of Varanasi, near the confluence of the Ganges and Varuna rivers, is said to be where sometime during the 5th century BCE, the Buddha preached his first sermon and attracted his first followers, or monastic order. Famous for its archaeological and sculptural remains, Sarnath is a popular devotional and tourist site today. I recently spoke with Frederick Asher, Professor Emeritus of the University of Minnesota, whose book, Sarnath, The Critical History of the Place Where Buddhism Began, was recently published by the Getty Research Institute. Thanks for speaking with me on this podcast, Rick, and congratulations on your new book. Let's start at the beginning. Who was the Buddha, and what was his association with Sarnath? First of all, I'm really glad you refer to him as the Buddha, recognizing that that's an epithet, a kind of nickname he acquired upon his enlightenment that happened considerably um, later in his life. But just to give a little bit of background, he was born in the north of India, south of Nepal. There is some uh, debate, of course, as to where at least his father, a minor royalty, served as the monarch. India claims uh, one place for Kapilavastu, the uh, capital. Uh, they claim uh, Piprawa. Nepal claims Telorakot, which is very near Lumbani Garden, where uh, the Buddha was born, according to these later texts, from his mother's right side as she reached up to grab um, the branches of a shawl tree. He was born about 500 BCE. He um, was a prince then, but he had some doubts consistently through his life um, in the palace. The Buddha was, uh, or really the prince, was much moved by the things that he saw, worried about the luxury with which he lived. It was this kind of experience that led him in adulthood, though, after he was married, after he had a son, to leave the palace to go off in quest of a kind of wisdom. And he studied it with various sages until one day he decided that meditation might be the best way of uh, gaining the kind of insight that he sought. And so at a place that today we call Bodh Gaya, he sat through the night in profound meditation and by morning had gained full enlightenment and thereby became the Buddha. And so after several weeks remaining there, he decided to go off to a place, 
to preach to those who might listen. And he went westward towards the place that today we call Sarnath, where he encountered once again five monks whom he had known at uh, Bodhgaya, and he preached to them a sermon, a sermon about the middle way, that is, about moderation, about the eightfold path, as he called it, of noble truth, um, the cessation of suffering, and the list goes on through the remaining six uh, at Sarnath. And he was able to convert them to his way of being. Now, was that place, which was not then called Sarnath, but rather Rishipatana or Murugadava, the place where the deer were, the place where um, where the deer roamed, maybe we should say, uh, the garden of deer, or the place of the rishis, the, the sages, the wise men. And it was only sometime later, in the third century BCE, that Sarnath, as the very place that today we call Sarnath, a name that derives from a temple that is there, uh, but was not at the time, that it became identified as the place where the Buddha preached his first sermon, attracted his first uh, converts, and then subsequently attracted a larger and larger number of converts. How do we know the content of the first sermon? That's a good question, Jim. We don't know really the content for sure. But in subsequent texts, by subsequent I mean even uh, beginning about the first century, it's recorded that this is what he taught. But all this is sort of building a biography of a person who came to be quite important. At um, first, of course, he was a, a local sage. Subsequently, as he gathered more and more adherents, and finally, as they left the place that today we call Sarnath, um, to go wandering and gain more and more adherents, and he became the beloved of his adherents. So again, say such uh, texts. And when I say such texts, I mean portions of much larger philosophical or religious texts. Where do these texts reside? Where do they reside? They reside in the memory of those who had committed them to memory. Now, you may wonder about a text that runs, you know, in an octavo volume, normal book-sized volume, several hundred pages. How could somebody memorize that? The answer is they really, really could memorize vast amounts of uh, literature and still do. And part of the training that one gets, let's say, if you decide to study with a sage at Benares, modern Varanasi, would be recite after me, memorize this. And they do. So as a wonderful anthropologist who uh, worked extensively in South India, asked modern architects, well, 
do you have the architectural texts? And they'd say, yes, of course we do. And he'd say, oh, I'd love to see them. Where are they? And they'd point to their chest and say, in my heart. And I think that explains a lot about the tradition and why we have some variations on the texts, uh, as we really do. How long did the Buddha reside, if if that's the correct word for it, uh, at Sarnath? How long did he stay at Sarnath? You know, that's a, a good question, but one we can't answer. Here's my best guess. Um, he likely stayed until he had a fairly large group of adherents. So that I'm assuming a, a few years in any event before they went off to spread the word, so to speak, and um, wander over northeast India. What was the importance of the site uh, in relationship to Varanasi or Benares, as you name it, uh, and the river Ganges? You know, we don't know really, but here's what I assume. The Buddha, for then he was the Buddha when he came to Sarnath, picked the outskirts of Benares because it was an important city, a really important city as a religious center. And the Ganges, which flows beside Benares, was a main artery of travel. River travel was the main mode in pre-modern times, and so it could bring lots of adherents or potential adherents to the the Buddha at uh, that time. But I think there is one other thing. Benares, Varanasi, to use the proper name today, Varanasi is associated with uh, death. It is a place that people come to specifically to die. And I think the Buddha's concern with death and overcoming death made a location in proximity to Benares a very important one. What was the earliest structure on the site, and what was its purpose? And by site, I mean Sarnath. Yeah, of course. The answer is, again, we don't know uh, for sure what's the earliest. We have the foundations of buildings that date to the 3rd century BCE, 200 years, that is, after the time of the Buddha. In the West, generally, if we were going to rebuild a structure, we would tear down the old one, down to the foundation, and build anew. In India, the tradition is to encase the old structure and to thereby expand it. So at least the inner core of most buildings that stand does remain. Here's where the 3rd century BCE becomes very important. The emperor Ashoka, who lived from about 262 to 239 BCE, converted to Buddhism. Having converted to Buddhism, he decided to visit the various sites that were associated with the life of the Buddha. He was led by a a monk, first to the site where the Buddha was born, and there the emperor erected a pillar, and on the pillar he inscribed not his usual edicts, 
but rather an edict that says, I declare this the site where the Buddha was born. In other words, he was on a mission to identify specific geographical places. And in the course of his travels, he came to Sarnath. And there, on a, a pillar, he inscribed an admonition to the monks and nuns at Sarnath. So clearly, by the time he was there in the 3rd century BCE, there must have been some kind of monastic gathering because his admonition to the monks and nuns is, hey, you guys, if you form any sort of schism, if you fail to follow a kind of unified practice, uh, you are going to be very much an outcast. And he describes what an outcast will be. So it does seem that when he arrived at these places, especially the site where the Buddha was born, where he gained enlightenment, where he preached his first sermon, that is Sarnath, and finally after that, the place where the Buddha died, he declared them as those very places. So among the first structures is a stupa, a famous stupa. I'll pronounce it probably incorrectly, but Damek stupa. What's the date and purpose of that stupa? Again, we don't know for sure what the uh, date or purpose of the stupa that's known as the Damek stupa really was. It is today the largest standing uh, structure at Sarnath. It is sort of the iconic structure of Sarnath. And for a very long time, from the 17th century onward, it had attracted amateur uh, watercolorists, professional painters. It was an object of great, great interest. And today, the signage the Archaeological Survey of India provides there, one of the few extensive signs they have anywhere at the site, says, this is the place where the Buddha preached his first sermon. But they made it up. It is completely a product of the Archaeological Survey of India and a very, very modern one. Now, today it's a brick structure, but in its heyday, in the earlier years, it had had stone sculpture around it. What was the importance of that sculpture? Did it tell a story? Did it introduce the believer to a kind of environment that was important? Let's start off with this. A stupa is intended to enshrine relics, relics that allegedly belong to the Buddha, and they are kept in a reliquary. Today, all that remains of the, any sort of sculptural adornment of the Dhammak stupa is a beautifully carved pattern that runs the circumference of the stupa at a good 12 or 14 feet in height. Within this, however, there are niches, niches that probably contained uh, stone images, but they may as well have been stucco images. And we have no idea whatever what happened to those sculptures. Almost all of Sarnath's sculptures have today been removed to the Sarnath Museum, India's first site museum. When one approaches a stupa, 
There's a prescribed path that one takes. What is important about that and describe it for us? The general practice is to circumambulate the stupa in what today we would call a clockwise direction. It simply is a way of gaining proximity to the Buddha himself as represented by the relic inside. But today at Sarnath, groups of monks or devotees who are not initiated come to Sarnath and generally sit by the Dhammak stupa as a group and listen as um, a preceptor, a teacher, usually from their country, uh, Thailand and Sri Lanka being probably the most common uh, ones, and, and listen to them preach, listen to, the, to a sermon, listen to an explanation of a text. Imagine the awe of experiencing listening to a text expounded upon with exegesis by a profound adherent of the faith as you sit in proximity to what is imagined to be the Buddha himself or at least a portion of his body. Now I say uh, imagine because we don't know what's inside the Dhammak stupa. Today when one goes to Sarnath, one sees little pieces of metal foil uh, attached to the stupa. What is the importance of the foil? You know, this is an interesting question, partly because wherever one sees the gold foil attached to either a temple at Sarnath or the remains of a temple or to a stupa, there are always signs from the archaeological survey, do not put foil on this monument, but in contradiction, invariably, monks do it all the time. Um, and no one stops them and probably should not because there is, and appropriately so, a tension between Sarnath as an archaeological monument, a historical monument, but also a highly sacred one. Uh, the purpose, I'm not sure about the antiquity, although we do have one Buddha image, not from Sarnath, but rather from far in the northwest, that is fully covered in foil. My sense is that it is to give it a golden sheen, much as pillars are lustrously polished. I do think the idea of a kind of metal reflecting the sun was terribly important. And the sun is an important symbol in Buddhism. The poem, the Buddha Charita, the life of the Buddha, refers to the Buddha's birth in solar terms. Like the young sun, he had eternal uh, brilliance. Like the sun, he obscured the rays of the lamps of night and the moon itself. And it goes on and on in solar terms. The idea of brilliance, reflective brilliance, is, I think, very important. Now, give us a sense of the scale of Sarnath. Uh, how many structures remain on the site today, if only as foundations? I mean, there aren't very many built structures any longer, but there are foundations, as you mentioned. How big a site is it? The site isn't big. I can walk all the way around 
the excavated site, the site that is enclosed within a fence, the site that one pays a ticket to enter. Um, I can walk the whole thing in 20 minutes maybe, and I'm not a fast walker, um, so it's not a huge structure by any means. And, and so how many monuments are there? Two big stupas, one of which has been reduced to its foundation only, but uh, the diameter of that is easily as large as that of the Damek stupa. Then about a kilometer away is another, but outside the fenced area is yet another stupa. Within Sarnath, however, uh, within the excavated area, there are several monastic structures of which, again, only the foundation remains, enough to uh, see the individual monks' cells, but we don't have any idea how high they were. In addition to that, there are a lot of relatively small stupas, small carved stupas, which are monolithic, one piece of stone, about oh, maybe 18 inches in height, and they're scattered around the site. Now, I think the site has much more organization than often implied. For example, I see a row of monastic dwellings on the north side and another row on the south side, uh, the stupas in the center. Are we dealing with two schools of Buddhism? Maybe, maybe. But I also think it important to recognize that what we call Sarnath, the site that was used from the 3rd century to at least the 12th century, and once again um, in the 19th and 20th and now 21st centuries, extends way beyond the excavated site. I find mounds um, within a 10-minute walk, and I'm sure all those mounds contain relics. And I rather imagine that the images we find in American and European museums that are Sarnath-style images all come from these surrounding mounds as a result of illegal excavation. How and how often did pilgrims access the site? There's a curious thing that I've never quite, quite understood. The Western tourists who hire a car for half a day, uh, and visit Sarnath for about an hour. That's the average time, apparently, that a tourist spends at the entire site. And part of that may be oh, buying souvenirs or eating snacks. But it's the devotees, the worshipers, especially from abroad, that can't access the site quite so easily. Nonetheless, Many of them stay at designated monasteries within a 5 to 10 minute, maybe even 15 minute walk from the excavated area. There's a Chinese monastery. There's a Tibetan monastery. The oldest is the Burmese, that is the Myanmar monastery, but referred to still as the Burmese monastery. The list goes on and on. And in fact, when I was last at Sarnath, I've been there uh, I can't tell you how many times. When I was last there and walked out to the Vietnamese monastery, which is one of the farthest away, I saw a sign that says this will be the site of the American monastery.
So it's still an important pilgrimage site today. Yes, definitely. It is extremely important. If I had to rank order the um, Buddhist sites, I would probably put Bodh Gaya as first and Sarnath as second. So what we might say is that of all the Buddhist sites, Sarnath is the second most important of all. Why isn't it first? I can only make a few guesses because it certainly is the most accessible. There are trains, buses, even regular flights to Benares. That's not the case at uh, Bodh Gaya, which is still considered the holiest place. But I think that is because that's where he became the Buddha. What about the famous Chinese pilgrims, Fasian and Zhuangzang? Why and when did they come to Sarnath? The um, Chinese pilgrims, Fasian came in the 5th century, Xuanzang in the 7th century. We even have uh, their approximate dates. I think their fame and importance may be somewhat exaggerated. Indeed, um, Xuanzang, who kept by far the uh, greater, more extensive and more detailed account, dispenses with Sarnath in about two and a half printed pages. It's not an extremely long, detailed account. He simply notes, here were uh, pillars, there were three stupas, and so on. But it was Alexander Cunningham who founded the Archaeological Survey of India, who believed that India had no real written history. To a very large extent, he was wrong, but it just has to be extracted in a different way than the way in which we might extract a European history. And so he found the recent French translation of Song by Stanislas Julien, and um, was thrilled because here was an account in detail. I spent this night here, then I went there, then I went X distance to the next place. And so at last, Cunningham in um, the 1850s believed he had the source for, for reconstructing the history of the life of the Buddha and the places associated with his life. Well, speaking of uh, Alexander Cunningham, founder of the Archaeological Survey of India, tell us about the history of the Archaeological Survey, when it started, and how important it is today. Well, having mentioned Cunningham, who did excavate at Sarnath, even in the 1830s, Cunningham was from a highly privileged background, not surprising for British civil servants. He was an engineer in the Army Corps of Engineers. His brother was the political agent of the British for a very large kingdom um, in central India, which gave Cunningham the opportunity to excavate at a site known as Sanchi, a very, very important site, but not one associated with the life of the Buddha. With his retirement coming up in 18. 61, uh, he wrote Lord Canning, the Viceroy of India, to say, hey, look, 
we have the trigonometric survey. We are mapping India in detail. We have established the census. We are determining the population of India. But we need the archaeological survey of India to understand the history of the country that we now rule so benevolently. Oh, and by the way, said Cunningham, I'd like you to appoint me Director General of the Archaeological Survey of India. And Lord Canning did agree and created the Archaeological Survey of India, appointed uh, Alexander Cunningham its Director General. What was its ambition? Was it to map or survey the entire subcontinent of India? Cunningham's work was really limited to North India. He never extended very far south at all. And so what would have been his ambitions if he could have lived decades longer? Um, Maybe to go to the south. But his languages, his expertise, his level of comfort really was North India-based. And so we have some intimate and detailed records in 22 volumes of the Archaeological Survey of India reports. And I guess I should say 21 since volume 22 is the index. What about Sir John Marshall? Ah, Sir John Marshall. Um, A really interesting guy, to say the very, very least. Marshall had excavated three seasons in Crete and came to uh, India at age 26, 26 when he was appointed Director General of the Archaeological Survey of India in 1902. But I think there, there was more to that than his young age, which continues, however, to awe me. But despite the fact that he had a pretty gruff personality that is well recorded, he nonetheless was the first Director General to give Indians a voice in exploring their own history. Up until his time, that is until 1902, it was exclusively a European mission. When Cunningham was director general, Indians served to set up camp ahead of him so that he could have his dinner and um, comfort and his bed already made for him. That's not what Marshall did. Marshall, uh, who had an immense curiosity, very broad gauge, gave Indians a voice in the survey. At Sarnath, he picked up the excavations that in 1904-1905 had revealed some of the very most important of all objects. And then after his time at Sarnath, went on to excavate um, India's earliest civilization, Marshall was a remarkable, remarkable scholar. And by the earliest archaeological remains in India, are you referring to the Harappan civilization? Yes. When when I say excavating the earliest sites, I am referring to the Harappan culture that flourished from, and here will be um, a controversial statement, but flourished from about 2500 to 1900 BCE and was contemporary with um, the major sites of Mesopotamia, uh, with Sumerian and then Akkadian and um, civilizations.
Was it Sir John Marshall who discovered the so-called uh, pillar with the inscription of Ashoka on it? No, it, w- it wasn't Marshall. Um, and I'll bet he was disappointed. It was a German named F.O. Ertel who had renounced his German citizenship to take on English citizenship, and I suppose thereby a job, who got permission from Marshall to excavate at Sarnath during the 1904-1905 season. I put it uh, as a two-year season simply because the cool season begins in November, lasts through about March, and that's when most of the excavations were conducted. And Ertl um, uncovered some things that were of the most extraordinary importance from Sarnath's only dated images, three of them, um, to a pillar bearing Ashoka's edict. Remember, he was the uh, 3rd century BCE emperor who uh, designated the site that today we call Sarnath as the place where the Buddha preached his first sermon. And there on that pillar, fragments of it lying still at the site, protected, however, by um, a glass enclosure, brilliantly polished as Xuanzang, the 7th century Chinese pilgrim, noted. And on that pillar was an inscription admonishing the monks and nuns of Sarnath to avoid schism and asserting punishment. He also found the capital of that pillar, which shows four adorsed, that is four back-to-back lions, standing on a platform, often called by its Greek uh, name an abacus, with four different animals, a lion, a horse, a bull, and an elephant, each of them separated from one another by a carved wheel. And on the back of these four adorsed lions was held an enormous wheel. We're seeing two things that I think require still further interpretation. The wheel, of course, but also the four animals. And I do suspect, I do assume even, that the wheel both perched on the backs of these lions and also the wheels separating the four animals refers to the wheel of the law that the Buddha set in motion when he preached his first sermon. As for the four animals and the pillar, what is its symbolism? Here's the conundrum that I find absolutely fascinating. Between the time of the Harappan civilization, remember, 2500 to 1900 BCE, And the 3rd century BCE, that is the time of Ashoka, we do not have a single sculptured work that remains. Not one. And yet all of a sudden, during the time of Ashoka, we find extraordinary work in stone, such as this brilliantly polished pillar and its magnificently carved a Dorst Lion capital. So the obvious question is, where did they learn to do this? And there are all sorts of theories, some of them half-baked, it seems to me. And so we still need to puzzle 
and think uh, clearly about what's the symbolism of the pillar, but also how was it made, who learned to make such a thing. The tendency to look at foreign activity or foreign influence um, seems to me far too great. In fact, if I may say something about the whole world of art history, that word influence rather bothers me because too often we use it without explanation of uh, how the influence was transmitted, how and why it was received. And so while we might say, yeah, there's a bit of um, Persian influence here, it is used entirely differently in the Indian context. What about the so-called Sarnath School of Buddhist Sculpture? The Sarnath School of Sculpture, as it's so often called, refers to the 5th century sculptures generally of the Buddha at Sarnath. Slender figures wearing transparent garments, most often but not always, showing a gentle sway to their bodies. It is usually contrasted with another uh, style, and I would much rather see style than school as uh, the operative word, one at uh, the city of Mathura, rather far to the west of uh, Sarnath, where the figures look rather different from those at Sarnath. I will admit, as I think many Westerners do, that the Sarnath sculptures of the 5th century are magnificent. And I see that style not just as a Sarnath style, but as a wide-ranging North Indian style. I see the style as represented, for example, in the stone Buddha images at the rock-cut caves at Ajanta. I see it reflected in other Buddhist sculptures rather far to the east of uh, Sarnath. So it's not just the Sarnath school or Sarnath style. How does Sarnath function today? And, and what, what role does the Archaeological Survey of India play in planning its future? I don't know what the Archaeological Survey plans for the future. Probably not a great deal since I find it sometimes a little bit uh, too moribund. But um, Sarnath is exclusively under the uh, dominion of the Archaeological Survey of India. They uh, can determine everything from the price of admission to, to conservation. Every aspect of the site is fully controlled by the Archaeological Survey of India. The Archaeological Survey of India, however, does not extend its authority, as I wish it would, to the surrounding area. I do think there needs to be some degree of protection for the mounds that exist all over the area that is within a, say, 20-minute walk of the excavated site. Well, Sarnath has been proposed for UNESCO World Heritage status what would that mean in terms of what you just described? What would that mean both for the visitors, tourists, and pilgrims, and for the surrounding community to Sarnath? And what impediments stand in the way of Sarnath being granted world heritage status? 
Well, one of the biggest impediments um, to standing in the way is that the government of India needs to finish its report to UNESCO. They say it's going to be some 600 pages in length, and nothing moves that fast through a large bureaucracy. So it may be some time. But what would be the impact of world heritage? I think there are two ways of looking at it. To India, having world heritage sites is a big deal. The number of sites they claim is part of um, a real national, and maybe I should add nationalistic pride. So gaining Sarnath as a world heritage site would enhance the pride of, uh, of India. It would then be three of the four major sites associated with the life of the Buddha that would have world heritage status. Kushinagar, the place where the Buddha is alleged to have died, it would be the remaining one that does not have world heritage status. But I see lots of other uh, issues. The price of tickets would go way up. Right now it's five rupees for Indians, 200 rupees for foreigners. That still is a lot of money for the foreign pilgrims. It would go up to at least 500 rupees uh, for foreigners. Would that discourage some? You know, 500 rupees, less than $10. It's really less than a third the admission to the Museum of Modern Art. It does nonetheless seem to discourage some visitors. I have seen young uh, visitors to Sarnath, European visitors, who get to the gate and look at this and say, what, 200 rupees? I can't afford that. I don't think that's entirely true, but it's an argument. Two, and I think very much more seriously, UNESCO imposes a lot of restrictions so that on the long walk, both from the parking area of where buses and cars park to the excavated site, where today there are uh, carts where tourist souvenirs are sold, where food is sold. They would all be moved away. It would impact the livelihood of those and everybody else who set up shop within a kilometer of the excavated site. That's a lot of lives that are seriously, seriously impacted. And I'm not sure what the payoff really is, except for pride in gaining world heritage status and then in the process, eliminating the livelihood of a great, great many people and their families. Now, Sarnath is of the greatest importance to the history of Buddhism in India, but it's just one of many important monuments in need of financial and scientific resources. If you were in charge of Sarnath today, what would the first thing be that you would do there, and why that particular thing? I love the question. I really do. What would be the first thing I'd do? First of all, I'd celebrate. Champagne is hard to get in India, but there is a decent Indian champagne. And then I'd hope that somebody is in the wings, somebody with initiative and vision who could quickly, quickly replace me. So what else would I do during the first few days? I'd rip out all the signs with names 
uh, of the monument to have a sign that simply says Monastery 7 or Monastery 3 doesn't mean anything. And I'd replace the signs with meaningful interpretive data. And I do it in both Hindi and English, but maybe also in Thai and Sinhala to speak to the large number of foreign devotees who come. I think I'd add an interpretive center. There is nothing today, if you go to Sarnath, that gives you a feeling for what the site was, is, or could be. And a sense of the surrounding community, recognizing that Sarnath is much more than the excavated site. And then, oh then, what a joy it would be. I'd completely reinstall the museum. The Sarnath Museum contains all of the sculptures that were excavated there, and I'd provide meaningful labels for the works. Oh, and finally, finally, I'd appoint an advisory committee because with all the braggadocio that has just preceded this, of all the things that I do, I don't know everything by any means. And I do think there's sensitivities locally that are very, very important. I'd include in that advisory committee representatives of everybody with a vested interest in Sarnath. I'd include a bureaucrat. I'd include an officer from the Archaeological Survey of India. I'd include people, representatives of the diverse Buddhist communities. Uh, I'd include an architect. And then, and then I'd seek some funding to support these projects. Well, congratulations, Rick. Your book is thoughtful, scholarly, and beautifully produced. We're pleased to have published it, and we thank you very much. And in turn, thank you very, very much. It was a pleasure to work with the Getty on it. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.